All right, let's do it. We on? Yes. All right, so uh, 1 Corinthians 13, picking up where we left off before the Kingdom Companions series. Um, I, I originally thought, well, since I'm doing 1 Corinthians, after this we'll do 2 Corinthians. And then I got all excited about wanting to do the book of Acts. I thought that would be great. And then Sunday I heard the announcement that the men's Bible study is going to do the book of Acts on Monday morning. So I was like, nah. All right, so probably 2 Corinthians after first. Um, so in, in chapter 9, Paul starts a, a long thread that because of chapters and verses and paragraphs, sometimes we don't see the connection. But really, the, it's this long treatise where he is... Uh, dealing with what he sees are problems in the church. He's not necessarily answering questions anymore that the church gave him, but he's saying, you got some problems, you have some challenges. And he starts by talking about the importance of surrendering, which is true. And then he goes into the problem of idolatry, which was a huge problem all over Corinth anyway, but he talks about idolatry. These are all things we've covered. Then he talks about hats and hair. Remember how men and women are supposed to wear their hair or not wear hats or whatever that is, okay? Then he talks about the Lord's Supper. And then in chapter 12, which we're coming off of, he talks about spiritual gifts and the tension and the jealousy that spiritual gifts were causing in the church at Corinth. And that leads into chapter 13, which is the love chapter, but chapter 13 is looking back at spiritual gifts and then looking forward and preparing us for chapter 14 where he doubles down on the problems of specific spiritual gifts which would be tongues and prophecy. So chapter 13 seems like this chapter that's sort of on its own and isolated from everything else he's writing, but it, but it really isn't. It's connected and in context with 12 and 14. And so I hope we can uh, understand that. And then, and then after Tongues and Prophecy, he goes into talking about orderly worship as well. So he's dealing with the challenges in the church. I'll read the last few verses of 12 so that we can see that transition. Starting in verse 27, he writes, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third, by the way, the prophets there, the type of prophet he's talking about there is not somebody just sitting around predicting the future. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a biblical prophet who looks at God's word, looks at the direction your life is headed in and says, based on what God's word teaches and the direction your life is headed in, this is where you're going to end up. And that's a problem. So that is speaking prophetically, but it's an informed prophetic. Does that make sense? Okay. A lot of people think that the Old Testament prophets is just all this you know, future telling, and it's really not. Most of it is just the prophets going to the people in power saying, this is what God said, and you're not doing it, this, that's a problem. And then they would throw them in, in a ditch or in a well or something because they didn't like to hear that. You know? So first apostles, and the apostles there that he's talking about are all apostles. 
again, he's not talking about the apostles in the sense that they knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, were taught by Jesus. Not the original 12, or you could say the original 13 when you include um, uh, Paul, or 14, you include uh, Matthias. Uh, He's talking about an apostle in the sense that all of us in this room are apostles because we are people who go and tell other people about Jesus and about the gospel. That is also an apostle. So it's just that some are better at it than others. Some are more gifted at it than others. So apostles, prophets are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. So now he's saying, look, here's the problem with the gifts that you're having. You're not functioning as a body. The gifts are causing uh, dissension and problems. So the antidote to that, the the fix to that is this next chapter of only 13 verses. So chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I don't know why, but every time I read that, that word gong just sticks out to me and makes me laugh because I am old enough to remember something called the gong gong show, right? (laughs) Stupidest show ever to get more than one season on TV, I think. But nevertheless, anyway. So I think of that guy. I forget his name, but he had the crazy hair. And he, anyway, who ran, who was like the MC of it. So verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to, under, uh, so as to uh, remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So <clears throat> Trey alluded to this Sunday morning, which I appreciated because uh, he helped set this up. Uh, this is the famous love chapter. And just being transparent, this is often read, I would argue, somewhat out of context at weddings. So... I, you know, I do a ton of, this is a, demographically, we're a very young church. We do a ton of weddings. I do a ton of weddings every year, lots of premarital. And about half of the weddings always, you know, I have, I have a family member or somebody who wants to do a, a reading. Uh, what would be a good reading? And almost always they end up settling on 1 Corinthians 13. And, and this love does apply to marriage, but it's, it's so much more than that, marriage is, than just what's going on here. And Paul is in context here talking about the importance of a specific type of love agape love in the faith community in the church so in marriage you have and paul could have used any of these words when he talks about love um, but the, the greek has all these different words for love here he's specifically talking about agape love which is unconditional compassionate and selfless So no matter what, you're going to love, and this love is sacrificial, and it's rooted in the character of the one loving, not the worthiness of the one who is being loved. So there's also eros love, which is a Greek word for love, but eros love. Anybody want to take a guess at what English word we get from eros? Erotic, right. So eros love is romantic love or sexual love or sensual love, uh, love that's rooted in beauty, So that is part of marriage. 
generally speaking, <laughs> that's, gen- that's part of marriage. But it's, it's rooted in the worthiness of the one being loved. And, 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 and I would just tell you that I think Jackie's very, very good looking. And so I have uh, good eros love for Jackie, and she's worthy of it. But I will also tell you she's a human being and a sinner. And no matter how beautiful she is, there are times when I don't feel like loving her. That's when agape love kicks in. Because that's the love that's unconditional, compassionate, and selfless, and rooted in the character of the one doing the loving, not uh, the worthiness of the one being loved. Does that, does that make sense? There's also storge love, which is love that's rooted in security and peacefulness, and, and um, it's slow and, and reliable. All of these are different kinds of Greek loves, and all of them apply to marriage. But if you just look at this one love in marriage, you can't do marriage without this love, but you also can't do marriage without the other loves. This one love is not enough to sustain the whole marriage, but you desperately need it to sustain the marriage. So, uh, Paul is applying love to the manifestation of spiritual gifts. Um, I will say, though, whatever context you're talking about this love in, it, it doesn't matter because... You can apply this love to just about any kind of relationship or issue. And the point of this love is that it's really challenging. And that's one of the things that Paul is trying to get at. Because it is unconditional. It's the love that's supposed to kick in by your character when you don't feel like loving the person. This is when love is a commitment. Love is a verb. And the only way we get the character to be able to love unconditionally, to love with an agape kind of love is by knowing Jesus, by appropriating the gospel in our lives, because that's the way he has loved us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. That is an agape love. It's not an eros love. It's not a storge love. It's not a ludos love. It's not any of those other ones. Okay? So Paul sets some expectations for those in Christ as to how they are to love, and he's quite thorough. And one of the things that Paul says in other places in both Corinthian letters is he talks about how this love, agape love, this love of Christ, also constrains or con- controls us. So it's a love that, that is not only active, but it's also a love that uh, helps us withhold regrettable actions against others. So it constrains us. It also controls us as well. So let's work our way through it. So... Um, these first three verses the absence of love and exercising and manifesting the spiritual gifts Paul's point is that it makes the gifts absolutely useless you can have all this worldly talent to do all kinds of great things but if you, uh, if you don't use them with love it makes the gifts absolutely useless And then the Holy Spirit comes along and endows you with a spiritual gift, and it's a spiritual gift. And you can have a spiritual gift, but if it's not undergirded with love, that gift is absolutely useless. doesn't matter. And and it's interesting, the gifts Paul seems to reference here are the ones that he's going to struggle with uh, the church in chapter 14, tongues and prophecy. So even these, 
tongues, prophecy, without these, without love, these gifts mean nothing. Um, you know, I'm sure you realize there are a lot of people who operate under the uh, uh, sort of the principle or the assumption that the end justifies the means, right? You can admit that there are people who do that and that maybe you've done that in your life as well, okay? Uh, Paul would not agree with that based on what he lays out in verses 1 through 3, though. He, he would not agree that the end justifies the means. And the things that Paul lays out, speaking the language of angels, the ability to move mountains, being able to predict all things and have all knowledge about things, and to live the world's most sacrificial life, these are all good things. There's nothing wrong with these things. And these are things that we would want to do. But Paul ardently says, if I can do all these things and have all this power, but I do it without, the, without love, these, these things are disqualified. They're useless. Don't even bother. And then in order to support his argument, he explains what love is by listing all of these characteristics of love. So verses 4 through the beginning of 8. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. So here we go. <laughs> this is what I call a deep dive on word studies in the New Testament. So I'm if you're, a, if you're an office ladies podcaster, this is Jenna Fisher and Angela Kinsey doing a deep dive before they get into the review of the, I guess nobody's listening to that podcast. <laughs> it's a really fun podcast. Now, I want you to know I'm not listening to it instead of doing my study for sermons. I listen to it when I'm in the, uh, in, in the car on long drives, but it's a great podcast. they they take an hour and a half and unpack every single episode. What's going on behind the scenes? Anyway, you don't care. So here we go. Love is patient. So love waits even when it's difficult to wait. You heard Trey preaching this Sunday about the importance of waiting. The importance of waiting on the Lord. Waiting with purpose. Waiting with hope. But nevertheless, waiting on the Lord. Okay? Love waits with hope. Because the love we wait with is based on our hope in the gospel. And so we have a reason, a good reason to wait with hope. And because love is patient, it is also persevering. The word patient is also translated in some contexts in the New Testament and in other ancient Greek uh, 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 literary papers as perseverance or endurance and sometimes long-suffering. So I think that we can uh, agree that in order to have patience, we, we need to be willing to endure. Okay? They go hand in hand. I think I told you I made the mistake of praying for patience, and that's when I tripped and fell and tore my rotator cuff. And then I had to walk around for seven weeks in, a, in an immobilizer. Okay, then he says, love is kind. Now, I'm going to go off on this. I'm going to pitch a fit here. Okay. So love is kind. He doesn't use the word nice. He very specifically does not use the word nice. Nice and kind are two completely different things. Okay? And it drives me crazy 
when, when, when uh, we start talking about how people in the church should be nice. Because nice is passive. Nice is basically emasculated. There have been books written on the problem of nice as opposed to kind. I've read some of them. They're very good and very helpful. He says kind. Kind is active. Kind has a purpose. Okay? Uh, kindness is a wallflower. It's like you're just sitting around doing nothing, not, never getting involved. Kindness is, is pushing and active. Uh, I, 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 like I said, I just think of the word emasculated when I hear nice. It's like being neutered. There's no power. Does anybody know the etymology, the word origin of the English word nice? Anybody know it? Okay. 150 years ago in English, if somebody said that you were nice, they were saying that you were stupid or foolish. That's a problem. Okay, now you, know, now you know nice can mean a bunch of different things, but, but that's the etymology. There, there was a, one of my favorite books I read about 15 weeks ago, 15 years ago, uh, was a book called No More Mr. Christian Nice Guy. And, and he's making the argument, uh, we're not called to be nice, we're called to be kind, and there's a huge difference. And, and of course, he, the title of his book was kind of a play on Alice Cooper's song, which I liked, but... Um, by the way, Alice Cooper is a Christian. He's kind, but he's not nice. I don't know if you know that about him. Uh, nice is like mediocre. Okay? If nice were a color, it would be putty. <laughs> All right? He, here's, here's what the Greek word for kind means. It's strength under control while extending service, compassion, and empathy. See that? Being kind is a character issue. I would argue that just being nice is kind of a lack of character, even. Okay. Uh, then, love is not envious. Love does not resent joy, success, or accomplishment in someone else. I, I hope you understand that, the, that when you see somebody else accomplish something, and, and you and you talk trash about it, or you belittle it, or you try to drag it down, the only thing that's getting diminished in that is you. You're not diminishing the accomplishment, you're diminishing yourself. Saul's problem was that he was constantly diminishing himself. Because he was always complaining about other. Not always. The first couple of chapters he was alright. But then he got, he got really into that. that trouble. He was envious. He was arrogant. He was prideful. He was insecure. And the Greek word translated envious is zelu. And it's where we get the English word jealous from. It's the etymology for the word jealous. So envy, jealousy. Remember how Paul describes the church body working? He says, we rejoice with those who rejoice. And we weep with those who weep. And there's commentators who say, the reason Paul puts rejoice with those who rejoice first because it is because it's easy to weep with those who are weeping. It's easy for us to say, oh, that's too bad. I'm so sorry. But it's hard when something really good happens to somebody else. I, I have a couple of little stories about that. I, I actually had... You all see the movie Forrest Gump? Okay. I, 
I, I thought it was a delightful movie. It was great. It was fun. I enjoyed it. You know? Um, I had a friend, Christian guy. <laughs> he went and saw it. He was so angry. I mean, I, I couldn't believe how angry he got at the movie. I worked so hard, and that guy, Forrest Gump, he just, he just fell into success. He fell into money. He fell, and he was, like, legitimately angry about this stuff. I'm like, what is wrong with you? You know? Here's, I think, an even better story. I think I've told this before. Most, maybe some of you haven't heard it, but um, about 25, 27 years ago, so I'm in this uh, business network. I've been in it for 35 years, called the Executives Association of Greater Phoenix, about 100 of us. We meet every week, Thursday morning, have breakfast, and we network. It's really a great organization, really helpful. And there was a guy in there, and he was kind of my age, uh, maybe mid-40s, maybe a few years older than me. He was running a small family business, and he was doing, he was doing well, but, I mean, he was never going to be wealthy running this small one-shop family business. He worked hard and all that. Um, he had this aunt who lived in Oklahoma, and the aunt was, um, was quiet and sort of introverted, subdued, kept to herself, lived alone, um, lived in a little two-bedroom house in Oklahoma, about 850 square feet. I mean, they just lived very frugally, very frugally. Uh, and and uh, her siblings and her kids kind of had sort of just dismissed her. Well, my buddy, for whatever reason, every holiday, Christmas, Easter, her birthday, whatever, he would send her a card. And he wouldn't just send her a card and, and sign it. He would send her a card and he would write in there. And he did this for years and years and years and years. So... <clears throat> She passes away 25, 27 years ago. She passes away, and lo and behold, she had invested, she lives in Oklahoma now, she had invested money in oil, and she was worth millions, millions. And she left my buddy $8 million, and he got, he got the lion's share. And, and this is 27 years ago when $8 million was like worth $2 million. Okay. So more, way more than it's worth today. So anyway, he got the lion's share of the inheritance. And he actually flew back there and went into the house when they were sort of deconstructing the house and everything. And he walked in and, and it blew him away. And it was a really good life lesson, a long life lesson, but it was a really good life lesson. Every one of the cards that he had sent her over, over the years was, was tacked up on her wall in her kitchen. Okay. Now, that's a great story, isn't it? <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I remember, though, the reaction when, when he stood up at Egypt and said, I'm retiring. I'm done. I'm out of here. You know, and then, and then the word got around, and it was, it was like, yeah, he inherited $8 million. And it was, there was none of this, oh, wow, that isn't that. It was like, oh, yeah, that's great. It's great for him. You know. <laughs> love is not envious. Love, love is for others. It, it encourages others. It cheers others on. It, um, it advocates for others. But that's really hard. 
Uh, love also doesn't boast. Boasting is a problem all by itself, but it's also a component of envy and jealousy. When resentment builds because others seem to be doing better than you, you can fall into the trap of boasting. Uh, just think about social media, which is just an absolute mess anymore. Um, Kim Cash Tate, in her essay on social media, I love this quote, she said, social media is where boasting and bragging got their wings. Okay? See, I, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe you all are different from me. I would never uh, walk out my front door, summon my neighborhood, knock everybody, call everybody, all the neighbors out, okay, get them out there, and then, and then go through all of my trophies. <laughs> Show them all my trophies, talk about my achievements, tell them about the last raise I got, the last promotion, tell them about who I had lunch with, you know. I would never do that, right? But people do that all day long on social media. That's known as the disinhibition effect. You ever heard that term before, the disinhibition effect? Okay. We, we lose our inhibitions when there is something mediating our communication. Uh, I can't remember his name right now. He's a Christian that works for John Piper. But um, uh, he says it's a form of solipsism, which is where w w when, we're on, when we're on the Internet, w we think that we're actually just talking to ourselves. And you know how you say things to yourself that you would never say to somebody else? <laughs> well, that's disinhibition, that's solipsism, and it's rampant with social media and digital communication. So be really, really careful of that, uh, that stuff. Um, boasting is also a sign of insecurity. Uh, Brian Regan, the famous stand-up comedian, he says, a primary characteristic of the me monster, that person who seems to have to dominate every conversation, is insecurity. And the Greek word translated here as, as boasting, the lexicon has this, it, it says it, it means to act as a braggart, to show off, to seek too much attention, and to perpetuate a myth about yourself. Love doesn't do that. Okay? I'm glad I read this and learned this after I started trying to woo Jackie. Um, genuine <laughs> covenantal gospel love is not insecure. By the way, I forgot to mention, there are times when Jackie looks at me and she's like, I don't love him. Yeah. Just make sure you understand that. Uh, love is not arrogant. The word means puffed up or self-indulged. And this is funny. Literally in the Greek, a legitimate translation for this word, I've, I read three different commentators said this, a legitimate translation for this word arrogant is blowhard. Okay? Um, it's that person who thinks they're better than everybody else. By the way, you, I, I figured, so running over the last three decades, running in the Midwest, the upper Midwest, so Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, Illinois, and to some extent uh, Oklahoma, although that's not the upper Midwest, but um, I've run into a lot of animals on a lot of rural roads, you know, different animals. And, and I will tell you, there is no animal more arrogant than the skunk. They're the only ones that will engage. Uh, all the other animals, they're, they're more afraid of you than, than you are of them. They, they run off. They try to figure out how to get away. Even uh, bobcats, 
you know, even animals I'd be really afraid of. Not skunks. When I encounter a skunk, the skunk will turn, and, and this is seven or eight times, the skunk will turn and look at me, and I'm telling you, if I'm reading the nonverbal communication correctly, the posture and the facial expression is, I'm not moving, you're the one who's moving. And I even had one skunk that kept turning around and showing me his backside as if to say, I have this weapon. <laughs> you know, and then would turn back around and look at me. I was like, all right, I'm out of here. Anyway, skunks think they're better than us. Okay? So this word also harks back to the fall in Genesis 3 when the woman saw that the fruit was good for food and it was a delight to look at. And it was um, desired so that I could be wiser and more superior to other people. That's the translation of that third temptation there. This word means that if you love with a gospel-centered covenantal love, you won't act superior toward others and you won't lord yourself over others. Love is uh, also not rude. The word means to behave inappropriately or unbecomingly. person who forces... Here, here's a rude person. It's a person who forces their agenda on a decorum or an environment that certainly calls for something else. It's also a person who purposefully pushes unhelpful emotional buttons. Have you ever had that person in your life who knows your emotional buttons and knows how to push them? That's called beltlining in psychology. You're beltlining somebody when you do that. When you know just the right thing to say that'll just set them off or hurt them deeply. Okay? Love is also love also does not insist on its own way. I think the best way to describe this attribute is just to, to look at Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 and 4. Um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Verse 4, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I just, I've always been fascinated the way Paul words that. He says, look, it's okay for you to look, for, look at your own interests. But when your interests are intertwined with somebody else's interests, you've got to look to their interests first. That's what love does. Love is also not irritable. This one irritates me. See, one of my spiritual gifts is to be irritable. God has endowed me in an incredible way with that gift. And I believe I can love and be irritated at the same time. Actually, the word literally means temperamental or easily provoked. In other words, love, the love we're talking about is something that is thoughtful, calm, and measured. It's thoughtful, calm, and measured. Love is also not resentful. This word means that we don't keep, account, keep an accounting of how others have wronged us. You ever, again, you ever run into that person who says, I've forgiven you, but they continue to bring up the incident in later conversations, right? Okay. Now, a word about forgiveness. We, we could do a whole night on forgiveness, but a word about forgiveness. Um, you can fully biblically forgive somebody, but also say, I'm not going to allow myself to be put in that same position again because you have a pathology of doing that to people. You understand what I'm getting at? The uh, abuser in a relationship for instance, a, phys a physical abuser. You can forgive that, but it doesn't mean you have to go back into the house because that's a pathology and that's a problem. 
So you can forgive without necessarily restoring. Okay? But this characteristic that Paul is talking about here is, is he's saying, look, you can't, you can't forgive and keep bringing stuff up while in the same type of relationship. Once you've forgiven it, you've got to let it go. And I know that's hard. That means you've got to forgive every single day. But again, there's a psychology term for this idea of the person who like, collects offenses. And although they may say they've forgiven, they collect them and they keep them. And they pull them out from time to time. It's called gunny sacking. So it's a metaphor for the person who carries around this invisible gunny sack and, ooh, I just got offended. I'll just stick that right in there and use it at an appropriate time later. Okay? So this kind of love doesn't gunny sack. And then verse 6 is is an interesting clause. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. So what kind of wrongdoing are we talking about here? Well, it's either or both. Uh, We don't rejoice when somebody else sins and, and gets caught in sin, but we also don't rejoice at the misfortunes of others. You know, people who bought crypto really high and now are like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay? I have a friend who's dealing with that right now. Okay? But rather, it rejoices in the truth. So another way to say this is that love doesn't dance on someone's grave. Love does not engage in being a drama queen. By the way, the term drama queen is genderless. Anybody can be a drama queen. Uh, we should never revel in the embarrassment of others, and we should never try to make ourselves feel better by bringing other people down. Love does not do these things. Rather, love rejoices in truth. And, of course, the trouble here is that most people in our culture today believe that truth and truth-telling is not loving. That's, that's just the world we live in today. In fact, in many contexts today, starting, uh, stating something that is true is actually considered hate speech or a microaggression can't say something that's true if, if it's going to hurt somebody's feelings. So scripture continues to push against cultural norms. This is the third movie now I'm going to reference tonight. I'm, I'm on a movie roll tonight. Um, Jack Nicholson was right. We can't handle the truth. Uh, then verse 7 has an amazing list of, of the things that love does. Love does. That would be a great book title. Bob Goff. He already wrote that book. Okay. Um, And these four things all look back at the first characteristic of love, that love is patient, long-suffering, and perseverant. So love bears all things. Love believes all things. What? Believes all things? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So the second one, believes all things. What does that mean? Um, I think David, King David, is actually a, a pretty good example of this, if you follow David's life, if forget about all the sin issues he has, but if you follow David's life, generally he is almost uh, naively believes in the innocence of others because he has faith in what God is doing. But he's constantly giving people the benefit of the doubt. He, get, he keeps giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He, he gives Absalom the benefit of the doubt. Later on, uh, Shimei, this guy, uh, man, when David won the war uh, with Absalom and Shimei comes to David seeking forgiveness, 
nope. <laughs> David's like, yeah, no problem. In fact, in fact, when Shammai's doing his thing to David, David and, and, and all of David's guys are going, let's kill him. David's going, no, 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 no. Maybe God has instructed him to do this to me. Leave him alone. So that's a, an example of what it means. It means that our first flinch should not be suspicion but trust. Uh, it does not mean that we won't be burned by somebody who, who is untrustworthy. We will get burned. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be shrewd. Jesus even says you need to be shrewd. doesn't mean you shouldn't be wise. doesn't mean you shouldn't be careful. But one of the things that certain um, vocations battle is, is when you encounter and deal with people in such a negative light over and over and over again that it tips over into cynicism and that's your first, that's your first default reaction to anybody. And, and I will tell you that the three, the three vocations where that happens the most often is uh, attorneys, police officers, and pastors. And you never want, as a pastor, you never want to tip, tip into that because uh, then you lose your ability to truly care. And then you're done. Then you're done. But it does mean, so doesn't mean we won't be burned, but it does mean that we as Christ followers do not live a life that's constantly looking for the reasons that somebody's going to mess us over. So we, we need to try to default to trust in good faith. I don't know. Reagan said trust but confirm. That seems like a pretty good way to go. I'm sorry I brought up Ronald Reagan. So. Um, what? Trust but verify. Trust but verify. That's right. Not confirm. Trust but verify. That's right. Love bears all things. Uh, that word means that we stick up for each other in the faith community. By the way, you should do that in, in marriage, too. I spent a lot of time in premarital counseling talking about the importance of the back-to-back -back orientation of marriage and sticking up for each other, advocating for each other, encouraging each other. Okay? So we cover for each other, and we do that even when we don't really feel like it, just like in marriage. Uh, love endures all things. That word there is the word from... James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Hoopa Mene. James says, Consider it all joy, beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith will produce Hoopa Mene. And Hoopa Mene has been variously translated as perseverance, endurance, steadfastness, and patience. And then verse 8, the beginning of it is the grand finale, love never ends. Why? It's the agape love. It's the love that's rooted not in the worthiness of the one being loved, but rather in the character of the one who loves. If you're in Christ, you should have this character. And it's not always our first flinch. I get that. We have to work at it. But it is unconditional, selfless, compassionate, and empathetic. So, last part of verse 8 through 10. Paul says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. As for Look at the gifts again that he narrows in on preparing us for the next chapter. Um, as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we, know, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial shall pass away. So what this means is not 
that people can no longer prophesy or speak in tongues as some have insisted this, these two verses mean. doesn't mean that. Okay? But it does mean that all those secondary things that we place so much importance on in the church, that some of us place so much importance on in the church, they are not as important as love. They are not as important as the primary things. Read our membership packet. And you know that we have what's, what, what you might call closed-handed doctrinal issues and open-handed doctrinal issues. And, and nothing will divide a church faster than when someone or some group of people will take an open-handed issue and they will close their hand on it and force everybody else to abide by their interpretation and understanding of that open-handed issue. It's the reason why I had to leave the evangelical covenant and come to redemption. When I first went there 24 years ago, um, they had a mantra that said, where is it written? That was their mantra. And what they were saying was, if you can defend reasonably from scripture your theological position, we're okay. And so I said, I am a reformed complementarian. Are you okay with that? They said, yes, we understand the biblical argument for that. Okay, great. But they tended towards egalitarianism. They did. But then over the 12 years, 13 years that I was with them, that tendency just kept going further and further down. And that open hand on egalitarianism closed. And then the last couple of years I was there, that closed hand actually started beating on people who didn't agree. And that's when I said, I can't be here anymore. They've changed an open-handed issue to a closed-handed issue. That's, that's, a, that's a real challenge, a real problem. Now, some people would say that uh, Reformed theology is a closed-handed issue. I get that. I think the biblical argument is pretty convincing and strong. For that, But I also know that a lot of these things are a process for some people. When I first came to Christ, I was sure I still had free will. <laughs> it wasn't until I understood the nature of sin that I began to go, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't make this decision. Spirit revealed this to me. You know? So, too many churches make the mistake of closing their hands on open-handed things like tongues and prophecy. I've told you the story before about the students I had at GCU 24 years ago who came in and they, they, were, they, they said they had the office of prophetess at um, the big church on Cave Creek up there, Phoenix First. They were, they were both prophetesses. They had the office. Of, they were um, uh, consecrated by the pastor there. And, they had the, and, then, the, and then they told me that, um, that uh, all of their papers would be A's because... They were prophetesses, and I had no right to judge them in their papers. And I said, well, we're not going to get along at all, because I'm in charge of this classroom. <laughs> they dropped the class. So, but they, they, had, they had taken an open-hand issue, and they would closed their hand on it and, and made that. So uh, Mike Baird, I think one of the best Bible teachers ever, Grand Canyon University, just great Bible teacher, uh, he said, the definition of heresy is anything that's elevated above the righteousness of Christ in importance. That's pretty good. So tongues, prophecy. So tongues and prophecy can be heresy. 
if it's elevated or taught unbiblically. Okay, and that's what Paul's going to get at. And, and, and of course, there are a lot of people who are sort of in a twit about tongues and prophecy and want, here you go, they're called cessationists. They say that ended with the first generation of apostles. They say that, that, that those spiritual gifts don't even apply anymore in the 21st century. But they can be just as guilty as, as, uh, uh, of elevating the importance of no tongues and no prophecy above the righteousness of Christ. It's when you sit down with somebody for coffee and that's all they want to talk about. Can we talk about how good Jesus is? Nope, I want to talk about those rotten tongue speakers. Okay. I mean, yeah, I'm really going to step in it now. I made this point at camp. It was really interesting. I'm going to go a little over tonight. I hope you're okay with that. I made this point at camp. It was really interesting. I didn't do it in uh, family camp two, uh, but I did it at family camp three. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I feel more comfortable with them because I know them better. But um, I, I talked about how, um, you know, Donald Trump is a false god for so many people. And I, and I said, and, I said and, and here's the irony. He's a false god no matter what side of the coin, the Donald Trump coin you're on. And it was funny because people were like, uh, and then they, then they sat up when I said that. And I said, those of you that, that all, you, all you can do is talk about how Donald Trump's going to save us and he better run in 2024 and, blah, blah, and all that stuff, you know, you'd rather talk about Donald Trump than the goodness of Jesus. Okay, he's a false god. You're going to have to work on that. But those of you who hate Donald Trump and all you want to do is talk about how much you hate Donald Trump, He's your false God. He's got you either way. That's what's so amazing about the man. He's a false God for those of you who hate Donald Trump. Too. It was really interesting, too. Uh, after that message, I had two people walk up to me and say, that was, that was a really good message today, um, except for that part about Donald Trump, because I really think he's going to help us. <laughs> and, then I had, and then I had two other people who walked up to me and said, I want to tell you, I had never thought about my hatred for Donald Trump in that way. And I'm really going to have to consider that. So that was interesting. Anyway, th this is all, all of this elevation of things way beyond Christ that gets us into trouble. So Paul is saying here, know what's truly important, know what's essential, and know what's open-handed. So... Again, let me just talk a minute about tongues. I'm not a cessationist. Okay? I don't believe that the gift of tongues ended with the age of the, the, the apostles. I don't believe that. I don't think you can support it scripturally. So I believe that tongues are still a spiritual gift. But, 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 this is so strange. In my 35, 36 years of being a Christian, I've been in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian contexts. And I have never seen the gift of tongues practiced biblically. I've never seen them practiced biblically. So I don't know what to do with that. I, I still think it's a true gift, but I've never seen it practiced biblically. It's, it, it's practiced in exactly the way that Paul is going to argue against. I don't understand that. So, 
Last, uh, last three verses, I'll do 11 and 12 first. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been known fully, or fully known. So now Paul is making the point that mature believers have the wisdom to discern what is essential and what is less important. Uh, The ability to discern what to go to the mat on and what we can just hold loosely. Uh, the difference between what's urgent and what's important, the difference between the finite and the infinite, the difference between what's eternal and what's temporal. The childish person holds on to the trivial and less important and treats those items as if they are essential. And Paul says he used to do the same thing, but he's also saying, listen, We're all on a journey. We're all works in progress. We all need to grow. We all should aspire to mature. And Paul says, do what I've done. Put away the childish perceptions, beliefs, and methodologies. If you're elevating your gifts, your perspectives, and your preferences over love, unity, and the righteousness of Christ, if you're elevating those things over the resurrection of Christ, you are immature and you're causing dissension, factions, gossip, and division. Verse 12, Paul says, I know this is hard. We live in darkness and corruption and sin, so it is difficult to see the truth sometimes, and it is easy to be deceived by what we think is right and what we truly believe is God's work. He understands that. But Paul uses these 12 verses, and then verse 13, as a prologue to launch into 40 verses that we'll cover next week on tongues, prophecies, and orderly worships, worship, and how the Corinthians are falling short on this. And, of course, what Paul corrects the church in Corinth about is, is what so many churches today need correction in as well. So he says in verse 13, So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul's transition, this is Paul's transition into the chapter 14 corrective. Faith and hope are important. In fact, they're eternal and they're essential. But they're but they're not even as important as love. And if our gifts are not manifest, if our life in the faith community is not manifest through this gospel love, we're in trouble. That's what he says. So next week, chapter 14. Let me pray. I'm sorry, five minutes over. Our gracious God, we thank you for uh, your word and its truth. I know I say that a lot, but I, uh, it's because uh, I, I couldn't get along without it. It's how we know you. It's how we can understand. It's uh, where we can find wisdom. And then we bring that into community and into relationships. And the Holy Spirit works. And we pray. And all of those things become a part of, of uh what Paul describes as maturity here. So help us to be able to do that. Uh, Light us on fire for your word and also for your salvation for others. Show us favor, uh, protect us, but also provide for us. And help us to be a light in a very dark world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.